0: For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Could any words in the Bible be so comforting and so terrifying at the same time. These are words that I have run to at various moments in my life, sort of like a life preserver, an anchor to cling to when my own capacity to understand the world has reached its limit, when I was lonely or afraid or filled with self-doubt and needed to know that there was some order in the universe in the midst of the chaos even if I couldn't see it or understand it. There are also times when these words have been kind of like gentle fatherly or motherly correction, such as when I have wanted to lash out in anger at someone or something or make some other rash decision based on how I felt in the moment, or when I have not been able to understand or empathize with how another person is behaving And those words have reminded me that the way that God feels towards them, the way that God sees them from on high, from an eternal point of view, is not how I see them. That God sees them in all their fullness as a beloved child and does not judge them for their brokenness or just plain humanness, just as God does not judge me. But there are also times, I will confess, when those words have felt like daggers to me. When something terrible has happened, a senseless death, an illness that cuts a life way too short, an act of abuse that scars a person for life, and those words were used in a way that felt to me like serious emotional manipulation, as if I should not feel grief or anger, or moral outrage, because somehow it was all part of God's plan. In that sense, which I do not believe is the true biblical sense, but which nevertheless persists as a kind of quasi-Christian wisdom these days, these words become just another version of that little aphorism, everything happens for a reason. And underneath those words there's often the implication that the reason is somehow divine or holy. Our faith is being tested. We're meant to learn something. Or out of something bad, something even better comes to be. Now, I won't deny for a second that we can learn things from our suffering and grow as human beings, more compassionate, more resilient, I won't deny that we sometimes find ourselves in situations that do test our faith and our willingness to hold firm to our values, although whether God is the one who initiates those tests is up for debate, and I would be in the no camp along with Paul in our second reading on that one. And I would never ever deny that out of death can come new life. That is, after all, the central hope and promise of the Christian faith. But all that being said, there are some things that I just cannot imagine a loving God would do on purpose. Not a God I would want to worship anyway. And I would bet that most of you, at least once in your life, have thought that too. That there is no spiritual lesson so important, no eventual outcome so positive, that could ever justify that level of human suffering. The Holocaust comes to mind, 9-11, childhood cancer, what's happening right now in Ukraine. The idea that any moral universe in which those things could be considered higher than my thoughts sounds pretty darn corrupt to me. It wasn't so different in Jesus' day. We heard today that there are two tragedies that Jesus puts before the people in our gospel reading. One is an act of barbarism and sacrilege by Pontius Pilate, the political leader against a group of pilgrims. And the other one is what seems by all accounts to be kind of a freak accident, a building collapse. And then, like now, people wanted to know why. Why did God do this? Why did God let this happen? What did those people do to deserve this? Don't tell me these things just happened. Please don't tell me it was just an accident because then I or my loved ones could be next. Tell me what they did. Tell me what somebody did because if you don't, I don't know how I'm going to be able to sleep at night. Now, Jesus' response may sound a little harsh when you consider that the people he's speaking to are in grief. They're struggling to make sense of two senseless tragedies. But Jesus can't give them exactly what they want, an answer, an explanation, a way to understand why these or any bad things happen in the world guys, you can hear him say, do you really think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than any other Galileans? Do you really think that the victims of that tower were worse than anyone else in Jerusalem? Come on, my love. Like a parent whispering to her child as she pulls them in close and tries to soothe them. And deep down, we know. We know that life is fragile. We know that we, what we do have is a gift and that we should treasure it because tomorrow is not a guarantee. We know that we can take every precaution to exempt ourselves from those Ash Wednesday words, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. But we can't. And since we can't, what do we do with that? What does it mean to trust God, in a world where the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Jesus says it means repentance, but be honest, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear that word? For most of us, repentance means making an account of the bad things we've done, confessing them, and then asking for forgiveness. But Jesus has just gotten done telling us that our sin, or lack thereof, doesn't tilt the scales for or against us. So repentance in this case must mean something more. Sometimes in the Bible, repentance means turning around, turning away from something harmful and toward God. But it can also mean seeing things in a different way getting a new perspective, changing the way you look at a situation, which then, of course, changes the way you respond to it. So what exactly might it be that Jesus is asking us to see differently in order that we might more clearly see God? Well, I don't know if I have the perfect words for it, but somebody we know and love does. The other day, I was sitting with Frank Johnson in his living room. And this is after he had received the news that he had inoperable stage four lung cancer, despite being a marathon runner who had never spoke a day in his life and took great care of his body. But it was before the tests had been done that would determine the course of his treatment. It was that waiting stage that is sometimes the hardest part about receiving medical care. And it was almost surreal to me the peace that Frank had that afternoon, knowing that his life was going to dramatically change and in all likelihood end much sooner than he had expected or wanted. He was not angry. He did not ask why this was happening to him or why now. In some ways, you would have thought I had dropped by for coffee on any other Tuesday afternoon. And yet, he was not in denial. He explained to me exactly what was happening, what his prognosis was, and the plans he and Lorena were making for what would eventually come. We shared some tears, me more than him, as I recall as he talked about his trust in God's presence with him. He intended to fight the cancer, to do everything humanly possible. He would make the most out of every day he had. But he said that his real mission in life now was to show his grandchildren how to die with integrity and without fear. It was at that moment that I lost it in a way I have never lost it as a pastor and that pastors really shouldn't do in front of the people they're ministering to. I was there to care for him, not him for me. And yet what he said was so utterly gospel, so in touch with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that I was overwhelmed. Because that, what he was saying, beloved, is not making a good thing out of a bad thing that is finding God in the bad thing and having such trust in God's faithfulness so as to live each day with purpose and joy. And that is only possible when our seeing, our orientation, changes from God being out there somewhere, making decisions about our lives without our consent or punishing us for our mistakes, big and small, and rather seeing God with us in our suffering and death. It is seeing the ultimate revelation of God not on some mountaintop, but on the cross, bearing the burdens of the entire world, breathing out forgiveness from an unending reservoir of love. It is seeing God not as the owner of the vineyard in Jesus's little parable, who gets angry with his unproductive fig tree and wants to cut it down, but the patient gardener who would rather care for it with a little more love and attention and give it one more year. Which is always this year. Now is the acceptable time, Paul reminds us. Now is the day of salvation. Beloved, a good Lent is not one where we get from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday feeling sufficiently bad about ourselves, having denied ourselves the things we enjoy and wallowed in the dust and ashes. I think a good Lent is one where we are reoriented onto the cross as the tree of life as the eternal sign of God's presence with us in all the places where our own ways of thinking and logic and explanation no longer hold. It is when we ourselves see ourselves as branches grafted into that vine, who, although it be chopped down, still lives and grows forevermore. It is when the gardener nourishes us at this table with everything we need to bear good fruit. Such thoughts are higher than I could ever understand. But as Luther and our brother Frank would remind us, faith isn't really about understanding in the end. It's about trusting that God is who God says he is. And somehow, that will be enough for all of us to make it to the end, or at the very least, for one more year. Amen.